0: Hi David, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, so Freshneck was the uh, Freshneck was the first company uh, I think you started, and if I'm not wrong, you started that in 2011. At least that's what the LinkedIn says. Um, can you tell us a little bit about you know uh, what you were doing before Freshneck, uh, and you know uh, what led you to start Freshneck?
1: Sure. So uh, I actually started Freshneck a little bit before that. Um, I did it while I was working at my prior job, which is probably why that doesn't show up uh, on LinkedIn. But before that, I had careers first in law and then in finance. Uh, so I started off, I was a assistant district attorney in Kings County, which is Brooklyn, New York. Um, from there, I felt back on my MBA, spent some time at Merrill Lynch before going over to Jeffrey's. You know, the, the link between all those, you know, law, finance, true kind of professional services is I was always wearing a suit and tie, um, you know, and felt that there was this need for younger professionals to be able to keep things a little bit fresher and not have to pay uh, sort of the prices, you know, that were going to have a, a closet full of accessories.
0: Mm. So um, can you tell us like your experience of running Freshneck uh, when you moved out, I mean, uh, you were obviously positioned in, in, you know, larger companies and, you know, uh, Uh, So when you had to move to a smaller startup and, you know, you had to run it, um, what was your experience like? Was it it all that you had imagined it to be? You know,
1: it's, you get both sides of the spectrum. It's exciting, uh, but it's also really hard, right? At the end of the day, everything falls on you. I started the company with my brother for the first six months. We did everything, you know, before we started hiring a couple people who are specialists. So we did everything from finance, operations, legal, marketing. We had to lead the product and engineering teams. And ultimately it's an incredible experience, right? To be able to get some exposure to all those different verticals. And it also helps you understand every lever of your business, um, you know, to a degree that's necessary to
0: drive change and impact. Um, You said you started the company along with your brother. Uh, Do you think like... uh, you know, you've had the experience now. So would you think, uh, would you, is it advisable, do you think, to start a company with a f- fellow family member, uh, maybe a cousin or, or a sibling? What, how do you think about that? I, I
1: think, I, I don't know if there's any black and white rules around that. Um, I've heard horror stories of family members working together. I've also heard tremendous success stories. You know, on one hand, the advantage is you have built in trust. Right, you know, you, you've known people for decades versus finding a co-founder and getting comfortable within three months, six months, or even a year. On the other side, you know, other type of biases or conflicts of interests or tensions can creep in, and I've often seen this when sort of one family member, whether it's a spouse, brother, son, you know, cousin, uh, outpaces the other. It can create a lot of Difficult conversations.
0: Um, so once, uh, so I mean, you start Freshneck and then you successfully exit Freshneck as well. Um, so once you do that, uh, what is going on in your mind? I mean, do you did you ever think of starting another company? Or uh, uh, I mean, if, I mean, in retrospect, we do know you ended up uh, joining. I don't know. I'm not sure how to pronounce this. Is it C Origin or Co Origin Ventures? Uh, but you did end up joining that. Uh, uh, so. Uh, what led you to that? And you know, what were multiple uh, what were multiple things that were going on in your mind at that time?
1: Yeah, uh, happy to share. So it it, it was Corigen Ventures uh, with a hard C. A lot of a lot of people mispronounce that. You know, I, at the end of the day, I'm an entrepreneur, right? Like it runs through my blood. I can't really help it. Even in my prior roles in like law and finance, I was always managing my own client base, my own book of business, and trying to do it in a way that I wanted. Now, that being said, after selling Freshneck after a couple of years, I was pretty burnt out. Um, and over that period of time, I had gotten married, right? So my risk profile probably shifted a bit. And so I just really didn't have the stomach to go back to the beginning, uh, you know, eating ramen on the couch, not taking a salary. I, I, I couldn't do that again, but I still had this, you know, interesting itch to build something, to start something. And so after a little bit of consulting for some other startups, you know, I I started looking in the venture capital space. You know, I had built out operating expertise. I built out a network. I realized that my passion was all around early stage startups and innovation, um, but I just didn't really have it in me to go join another firm and just be another cog in the machine. I was fortunate enough to meet, you know, now my partner, Ryan Friedman. This was eight years ago who had been doing some of his own angel investing. He was also a very successful multi, multi-time entrepreneur. Um, and he was looking to start a fund. And we aligned on our experiences as first-time founders and what was missing from our investor base. And we really started just building out a vision of how we can work together and build something, right? So while we are investors investing in other entrepreneurs, we're also building out our own firm, our own brand. And so we're able to still scratch that proverbial
0: itch. Um, I want to go back to one of our, in in the answer you spoke about, you know, how you didn't want to, uh, uh, you know, uh, not start another company because, you know, you didn't want to eat uh, diamond out of your couch and, you know, not not take a salary per se. Um, In the sense that... when starting a company, uh, do you think it's wise that people start? I mean, generally, would you do you think that it's wise to start a company when you are very young? So that's one track. But uh, I think there are also reports which say that you know most of the successful founders, uh, the average age of a successful founders in their mid forties or maybe uh, yeah early forties or mid forties. Um, how do you look at that uh, disconnect in the sense that the the risk profile uh, you're you're generally there's less risk when you start out early, but most successful founders, you know, generally peak late. So how do you look at that in your experience?
1: Yeah, I, I think you're hitting on an interesting factor here, right? That the people who can more easily start a company are those who are younger and maybe less inexperienced. The ones who have maybe a higher probability of success are likely a little bit older um, and may not have that same type of risk profile. So there's a little bit of a mismatch there. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, one, I, I highly encourage, you know, young folks to get entrepreneurial and that could mean starting a company, joining an early stage company. When you have that risk profile, the learnings, the network, the experience that comes from that to me are unmatched. Now, I think, you know, um, the other part of the equation, which is a little bit harder, is how do you get people who are experienced but may not have the luxury of you know, taking no, not taking a salary for a period of time or taking that type of risk? Um, how do you get them to build the companies? I think that's where folks like we come in, in venture capital, right? You know, the, the first round of capital is often used to allow an entrepreneur to take the risk, to leave his or her job to at least be able to get the salary that they need. And there's all types of different arrangements now where when I got in this business seven, eight years ago, I think there was a little bit more of like a stereotype that like a founder had to take a very, very low salary and had to really sacrifice early on. I think that shifted a bit and we're cognizant of life decisions that some founders need to make. If you have a family, if you have children, you know where maybe you give up a little bit more equity, but you're able to stay a little bit more comfortable
0: to bridge that risk tolerance gap. Um, I want to continue this thread a little bit. So I mean, uh, so you started, I think, your first company, you know, prior to 2011, and you know, it's 2021, 2020, uh, 2022. So it's almost been a decade. Uh, how have you seen the, uh, you know, uh, the journey of an entrepreneur uh, in this in 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 this full decade? I mean, uh, the kind of perception that there was in 2009, 2010. Of you know starting a company, being an entrepreneur, uh, how has that shifted, uh, you know, in the in the decades since?
1: Yeah, you're you're making me feel a little bit old here, um, but but the reality is, ten years ago, it was not the cool normal thing to do to go start or join a startup, right? You know, I was expected to be a lawyer or a doctor or work in finance or you know the traditional jobs, and when I left working at a global investment bank to start a fashion technology company i got a lot of questions and comments from family friends and others who thought i was sort of you know the outcast now um, i think people are realizing that one this is where impact happens right this is where um you know we can all make our mark on the world both financially and otherwise um, and it's now become a little bit of the you know, sort of uh, not, not cool position, but you're seeing people leaving you know, traditional gold standard jobs like hedge funds, private equity, consulting, investment banking, law to go join the startup world. And I think it's awesome, right? So the level of talent that is now in the startup ecosystem is multiples higher than what it used to be. And one of the things that's helped that is the incredible amount of resources and content that is out there when i started my company over a decade ago we really had to learn everything trial by fire and i had a, a small cohort of peers who were all starting companies we would try to help each other out now you know there are thousands of venture capital funds with blogs there are all these articles that are open source there's accelerators there's mentor programs um so a lot of the playbooks are out there, which just makes all of our jobs a little bit easier. Um,
0: I'm not sure if I should ask. Um, okay. Anyway, I'll just, uh, I was not sure if I should ask this now or later, maybe, but since we've done this, um, did you get a reality check in the sense when, I mean, when anyone joins a job, uh, I mean, they have a perception of the job. Like, you know, if I'm a software engineer, uh, you go in with a certain mentality, you know, this is what the job is going to be. Uh, when you, uh, you know, uh, where a VC, did you get a reality check? You know, did you have an assumption that was completely shattered? Or uh, was there something that uh, people generally think of uh, the VC world to be true, but you realize, you know, it's not that it's it's not, it's partly true, but it's not the whole picture.
1: Yeah, it, it's a good question. I've definitely seen that I, my own experience probably doesn't mirror that I actually did not come in with a lot of assumptions or expectations. Again, back then, the world of venture capital was was a little bit more in a black box. I didn't really know my role. We didn't really have a firm. It was really Ryan and I figuring it out as we go, and we built out a five-year plan, and we're now on year eight of that five-year plan. That being said, I do think now venture capital is sort of glorified as this position of power, where all you do is hear pitches all day and decide who gets money and who doesn't get money. The reality is, you know, I probably spend 10 to 20% of my day max meeting founders and listening to their pitches and making those types of decisions, right? There's a lot more research, operations, administrative work, um, working with portfolio companies, we have to fundraise. Um, so definitely not as glorious. And I, I've met many people who have had those assumptions and expectations coming into our ecosystem, uh, be disappointed.
0: Um, okay. Um, so on the website, it was written, uh, it was written that, uh, so you, uh, once, I mean, once you started, uh, once you started the job on your website, it says that, um, you are interested in marketplaces, subscription commerce, shifting demographics, sharing economy, uh, which one are you currently focused on and, you know, um, and how has that changed the way the years, kind of?
1: Yeah, ironically, the one I'm probably most interested in and spending the most time in right now hasn't made it to the website. That's how fast this industry can change. And, and that's blockchain and Web3. Probably not a surprise. Um, the way that we work at Alpaca um, is we are generalists at a high level, right? I think you just named a whole bunch of sectors. If you look at our portfolio of 70 plus companies, it can look like it's all over the place. The reality of how that actually happens is we do a lot of thematic research-driven uh, investing, where for periods of time, and it could be six months, 12 months, three years, You know, we do a lot of upfront work and make a decision to spend a period of time going deep into a space. So there was a time around when we probably launched that website where those were the sectors I was really interested in. Some of them are, are still evergreen, um, but I'm now spending most of
0: my time in Web3. Um, so so two things there. Uh, so I think, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, uh, I think, uh, what you just mentioned is a field study program, right? That's right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what a field study program is? How has that helped you? Uh, and um, uh, and maybe after that, I want to go to the NFT wave. Uh, but yeah, maybe if you could just talk a little bit about Sure.
1: Sure. And and I'm happy to use that NFT Web3 field study maybe as an example to walk it through. Right. So what is a field study? A field study is a 90 day sprint um, where we form an internal pod. Typically, it's a senior partner, a junior investment team member, and we have a rotating group of MBA associates. And the goal is to identify a trend in the market that has a big opportunity with a catalyst, so timing is important, where we think we may have some unique insights or advantages to invest, and we spend those 90 days becoming experts, meeting everyone in the space, whether it's investors, founders, incumbents, customers, and building out, forming opinions and building out frameworks to invest before we even meet the individual companies. Another part that's important of it is we will publish a lot of our research and the goal is to brand ourselves as the experts and as interested in this space to create this um, flywheel of deal flow, you know, post execution. And so instead of, you know, being introduced to an entrepreneur in a random sector and needing to really first understand the market in the space before you even really understand the founder and the product, we've now done. let's say, of the work up front, and now we just need to get that final 20% so we can work very quickly and we can
0: also add value to the founder immediately. Um, uh, Just to uh, segue, I mean, in in 2021, uh, I think you wrote a Medium blog post. uh, This is a segue on to the NFT that you mentioned earlier. Uh, You wrote a blog post uh, making sense of the uh, NFT wave. Um, So... When did you kind of get, uh, when did you kind of start getting interested in, you know, Web3 blockchain? um, And uh, how do you look at the industry uh, as an investor?
1: Yeah, so I'd been a, what I'd call a casual observer of traditional blockchain and crypto, you know, for probably four or five years. And candidly, I always felt that I missed the boat or was a little bit late to that game. And back then, kind of said to myself, like, this is very complicated. It is really hard to just dip one foot in and make investments, right? There's always going to be people smarter who spend more time or really experts. So I made the decision. You either have to be all in or all out. And back then I said, if I don't have any advantages, I probably shouldn't invest there. So the second go around, right, where what I'd call like the consumerization of blockchain and specifically in NFTs. I was not going to make that same mistake again. And so I started getting really into this ecosystem uh, really when the pandemic hit. So March 2020, um, I started as an early adopter into Dapper Labs and NBA Top Shot, into a gaming company called Zed Run, and then I started buying, selling, trading, and investing in individual NFTs. I was doing most of this as like an individual enthusiast, and I started to see like where the market was going how the infrastructure was working and a lot of the problems in the space, right? Fraud, security, on-ramps, the technical complexities. And so in early 2021, that was really the catalyst that I needed to embark on the field study around Web3 and NFTs. And so I spent, again, three, four months undergoing that process. What you saw in that blog post is kind of one of the main deliverables that came out of it, or at least the published part of it. That field study is what I would call a macro field study. It was very high level. The goal is to break down this new ecosystem, and we broke it down into 10 different buckets. Everything from you know, DeFi finance to creator tools, the metaverse and virtual real estate, gaming, uh, digital art and collectibles, um, B2B on-ramps, and, and ultimately the goal is to like discuss each one And identify which were the couple that we wanted to spend future time in, then we would do what we call micro field studies, which is taking one of those subsector verticals and going really, really deep into there. And so a couple of those sectors that we found interesting, uh, one was the metaverse and virtual real estate, which then led us to do a micro field study in that space, which then led to our investment in Sandbox, the probably leading and largest metaverse. A second one was B2B on-ramps, right? helping e-commerce companies, Fortune 500 companies, really anyone with a built-in community, figure out how to bring that community into Web3 for loyalty, retention, and all that fun stuff. That led to an investment that was announced just a couple weeks ago called Wear Circles. And the third space we found really interesting was gaming. Um, we looked around, didn't really find the right investment for us. And so we actually incubated a company in that space. Uh, where I am a co-founder and now spend a decent amount of time there. That company should get announced
0: in the next couple of weeks. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, a few random questions before we close. Um, the first sure. one is: uh, you bought up uh, uh, you bought up metaverse, and I and, and I also think I saw it uh, on the medium on a, on the blog post on the field study on the field uh, study program. I think you had done. I think at least Alpaca had done. I think one that was one of the sectors. Um, what are your thoughts on the metaverse? I mean, there's a lot of ex- excitement about it, uh, primarily because of, uh, I think, uh, Facebook. Uh, but, but also, I think a lot of people don't understand it. I certainly don't understand it. Um, uh, what do you think about its impact uh, in, in, the coming, in the coming years, per se?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we probably don't have enough time today to go as deep as I'd love to go on all things metaverse. You know, I'd say it has already been proven that humans um, appreciate digital identities and congregating in digital ways with their peers um, and being part of, call it alternative worlds, right? We see this through video games. We see this through Fortnite, Roblox, Minecraft. Now what Web3 and the metaverse brings to that is a more open and decentralized network where instead of Roblox owning it and you're just a user. And when you leave that game, you take nothing with you. Here, the community itself, the users will partially own the platform and be responsible for sort of building out what their vision is. What most excites me about it is it it can be a great equalizer for the economy and access right? I, I truly believe that this will be a platform for jobs that didn't exist before, right? Architects, designers in the metaverse, gaming designers, economy creators. Um, and so these people can be from anywhere, third world countries, right? Who now have the same access to opportunity, uh,
0: that typically was not afforded to them. Um, taking, uh, from the blog post, uh, Continuing from that thread, uh, I think you write, uh, I think you write this thread of, uh, I think you write this blog post of uh, where do deals come from, I think, uh, on a yearly basis. Um, Can you tell us, uh, you know, what's the purpose behind, uh, you know, uh, behind doing that every year? Uh, Is there, uh, is that just for your clarity or is there something deeper there? Yeah,
1: so I started writing that seven plus years ago and it certainly evolved I'd say there's a couple main goals um, one is to open up you know what I referred to earlier as the black box of venture capital help people understand what does our day look like how do we do our job how do we find deals how do people get in front of us right and just sort of be add a layer of transparency to this world um, The second reason is really for founders as my audience. I I think a lot of founders, first-time founders, especially those who aren't well-networked, don't really know how the fundraising process works, how networks and relationships work. So if I can show them, kind of reverse engineer, here's every deal we did and here's how we find them, they can do the math themselves. Okay, here's some of the things that I need to do to increase my chances of getting a deal done with a venture capitalist. And then lastly... You know, we track a lot of data internally around our deal flow and our deals done so we know how to best optimize our time, right? If I see that I'm spending X amount of time at demo days, but in six years, I haven't done one deal from a demo day, maybe I need to reevaluate
0: how valuable that is as part of my arsenal. Um, Talking, I mean, uh, while doing deals, uh, I think because of the pandemic, uh, I'm not sure if this is true, but I think... uh, I i'm guessing you would be doing deals where uh, in a scenario in a scenario where you're not you haven't even met the founder face to face is that true and if that is uh, how different is the dynamic and you know is there any impact or is there any impact of that in the sense that meeting a founder is is that a huge component or you know it's it's prob- it's probably irrelevant uh, how do you think about it
1: so yes we've made plenty of investments without meeting the founders um, there are a couple things that you miss. You know, one, you just miss a little bit of that uh, energy and connection and body language. Um, two, if there are multiple founders, you can miss out on sort of some of those same things, the dynamics between founders, and you know, do they get equal time and space? Does one sort of talk over the other? It's a lot harder to dedicate on Zoom. On the other hand, one, you remove, I think, a lot of the biases that come from some of those in-person meetings, you know, people often talk about like the beer test, like, you know, would you wanna get a beer with this person? To me, I don't give a shit, right? Like, if I wanna get a beer with someone, I'll get a beer with someone. If I wanna invest in their company because I think they're great entrepreneurs, that's a very different decision tree for me. Uh, What it has allowed us to do, it removes the bottlenecks of meeting in person, right? If we're looking at a deal in Los Angeles and I gotta figure out how to get on a plane and get over there for a second meeting, I can lose a week, two weeks easily in that planning where now I can move much quicker uh, in the virtual world.
0: Um, if I'm not wrong, uh, Alpaca is based out of uh, NYC. Um, since I think, um, I, I may be wrong, but since there's a larger concentration of VCs in uh, San Francisco, uh, are there any disadvantages that come from being an NYC uh, or, you know, or is that an advantage?
1: Yes, yeah, so our, our initial hypothesis eight years ago was that New York is the next big, great ecosystem. And so we wanted to be early to that ecosystem where I don't really know who the supply or the demand is, but I'll just say the supply of investors was lower than the demand of founders, right? And to me, that's the ideal right? Because at the end of the day, it's about competition, right? So you can have great founders, but if you have more great investors, it's still going to be hard to win deals. Um, and we think we were right on that hypothesis. And about half our portfolio was from New York. Now, once the pandemic hit, I think all those rules changed. We are already starting to see you know, democratization of access and capital into second and even third tier cities in the US, as well as abroad. Um, we are now a distributed team, so we're three partners. One is on the West Coast, one is in New York, and I'm here in Miami, um, and we're seeing talent everywhere at this point.
0: Um, I think uh, on that note, uh, David, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, it was uh, wonderful having you. This is my pleasure. Thank you.